This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, welcome back to The Forging Table. The mission of Undaunted Life is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So at The Forging Table, you'll see a group of regular guys forging spiritual resilience by digging into God's Word, and we're welcoming all of you to come along on that journey with us. So before we get into 1 Timothy 3, we need to do some introductions because we got a newbie because that's Matt, that's Derek, you guys know them. But now we got Zach Todd. So Zach, this is your first time. And so how we introduce people that are at the forging table for the first time, you got about two minutes to answer three questions. When and how did you come to faith in Christ? How do you like to study the Bible? And how does your brain work? So, and if you forget any of those, we we can remind you, but start, you know, when and how did you come to faith in Christ? How do you like to study the Bible? How does your brain work? Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Yeah, my name's Zach. Uh, I came to Christ as the result of a long journey. Um, I've heard you talk about this many times. I grew up in a Christian culture here in Oklahoma, lived all over the country in various places, uh, so was very familiar with it, but definitely was sort of on the run from what I felt like was going to be a lot of responsibility if I ever actually accepted it. And that took me a long time. It took me about 33 years to finally come to the conclusion that I needed to yield and authentically give my life to Christ. And that came with a whole bunch of lifestyle changes and other things with that. And uh, also just an unbelievable journey in the last couple of years. So that happened in our church um, here recently. And uh, ever since then, it's just been an incredible experience. Anything else on that subject? No, good. So how do you like to study the Bible? And then kind of how does your brain work? Yeah, so I'm definitely a reader um, all the time. Uh, So I I typically kind of methodically go through something every morning or um, throughout the day. I've got certain chapters and things that I'll be working through always some sort of a chapter in New or Old Testament, and generally probably some kind of a proverb or a psalm as I can kind of work through that uh, and trying to compare the two. I've gone through the note-taking process and all that stuff, but honestly, I think my objective is to kind of be like, like Phil on Duck Dynasty. You mentioned some things where you're just absorbing it, so it's mm-hmm. in there, Yeah, and I find that I can recall that, and, and that's what's most helpful for me. And so you're... Are you more of a respond quickly once you get a thought in your head? Do you like to chew on it? Because that's, that's part of the thing, like the people that I asked to be a part of this, everyone kind of has a different thing that they bring to the gumbo because I'm like, quick, let's shoot as fast as possible, whereas other people kind of chew. Like, are you more of a marinator or do you like to just kind of get, get it out of your head as quickly as possible? Definitely a marinator. I want to process. I want to try to understand it from multiple angles and uh, also try to understand it within context. Uh, so <clears throat> when I get exposed to something, it's going to take me a second to kind of process through it. Okay. Well, uh, we'll try to make sure your processing is fast enough to where it creates good content. Because if you're processing the entire time and then you wait until the break yeah. to say all the cool stuff, like you'll be fired. So like that's, yeah. we're, we're going to get to yeah. it as quickly as possible. But all right, guys, let's get into 1 Timothy 3. So obviously we've been spending a lot of time on, on this letter. Um, and this is where the rubber really starts to meet the road in terms of like church, in terms of like how church is to be done. And the first section of 1 Timothy 3 is talking about qualifying 
qualifications for overseers. And so overseers is not really a word that we use in the churches, that, at least that I've been in. But, you know, when you look at any commentaries, they're like, okay, by that they mean pastors, they mean elders. Like that means a lot of different things. But I do actually just want to read uh, the first seven verses here because I think it'll kind of set us up as we, as we move forward. So this is qualifications for overseers. And I'm reading from the ESV. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into grace, into the snare of the devil, or into disgrace, rather, into the snare of the devil. So the thing that jumps out at me from the very beginning, guys, is something that, you know, in our current cultural moment, right, regardless of when you guys are listening to this, it's going to be relevant, is the gender language we see. He, husband, he, his, his, he, that's all throughout this section, and yet we find so many churches in our modern day trying to rewrite this section, and then we'll get into the next section with, with deacons here in a second, because I want to get y'all's feedback on that, but I guess I'm just, I'm confused why so many churches are trying to, I guess, rehash this part of the Bible as if like, oh, Paul didn't really mean that. That was more of like a, a language key that he was using at the time. Like he's using, you know, this masculine language, but not to describe uh, the, the male form. He's trying to do it like for whatever reason, that's what hop out, you know, jumped out to me whenever I was reading this first section here. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think sometimes it seems like churches just take this letter out of the Bible. They just skip over it and they don't even look at it. It's too um, weird. It's too awkward. It, well, it's like there's, I mean, you go through this, the first seven verses, and I can just see in my head you know, dozens of pastors that I think, man, you probably shouldn't be a pastor. Like, there's a, probably a lot of them out there that just, like, they don't, they don't fall into the parameters that Paul clearly sets. And the thing that stands out to me the most is he opens this paragraph, like, in the, in, the first chapter, the first part of his letter, he uses the same t- uh, type of language where he says the saying is trustworthy. Like, this is, this is for full acceptance. Like, right. he is throwing the gauntlet down. Like, this is something that should be aspired to. And, like, he's not mincing words there. He, like, he throws that in there on purpose. And mm-hmm. I, it's, it is interesting that churches throw that out. Uh, well, it is. I, I agree. And so, um, <clears throat> Matt, to your point, I think it actually goes back to your story. Zach, so my kids and I were having a conversation this morning about people who maybe don't fully grasp the gospel, or as you're saying, they don't fully grasp the section of this letter, because if you look at the letter, then you're forced to make a decision, and then you're forced to take action on that decision. And so, Zach, it goes back to your story of like, hey, I was kind of rejecting or just pretending that Christianity didn't exist, so therefore I didn't have to change my lifestyle. Absolutely. I mean, when I read this, I don't go to the church. I go to myself. It's extremely convicting. If you think about what this says, you can't hide from it. You know, this says that you've got to lead your family, right? That your kids have got to be, you know, in line and and respecting and all that sort of thing, which implies that you've got to be home being an actual man, according to the biblical description of manhood. So, so here's the weird thing about the leading the family part that I find odd. I know a lot of men and Derek, you and I have talked about this because we've, we've had a lot of professional conversations, you know, in the 20 years we've known each other. But there are a lot of men that are so impressive 
in the business space, like they're absolute monsters. They just kill it. Like you want them to be your CEO during a downturn. Like you want that person, but their marriage is in shambles or non-existent. Their kids are absolutely ratchet. Like, and you see, you see a lot of that with pastors, like people that have pastor in their title. And we'll get certainly more into that here in a second. But that just seems very odd to me because I'm attracted to competence. And so when someone is competent in whatever area of life, I'm like, I'm attracted to that. But then you see leaders in the church that are just like, man, but your kids are awful. Like, and, and you're telling me how to raise my kids. Like, I don't, I don't really get it. So, okay. So, um, I work in, um, vocationally inside of family ministry. And, and we run into this often, especially with pastors, um, with ministry leaders or with other people. So Jesus tells us the story of a, the good shepherd who leaves how many? The 99 to go after the one, yeah. right? Well, a pastor who is pastoring a flock oftentimes does the exact opposite. The needs of the 99 or his congregation are so great or so, so immense that he can't, I mean, it almost feels sinful to turn his attention away from his congregation. Um, and so he faces the 99 and leaves the one, but the one that he leaves is his own family, right? And so mm-hmm. it, it, it's that constant draw. And so he leaves his family and his family is in shambles, like you're saying, Kyle. That, that's saying, okay, can I pivot just a little bit? Yeah, let's go. Okay, all right. So what struck me, um, I did a lot of uh, <coughs> diving into this first section, first seven verses of 1 Timothy 3. First thing that hit me was verse 1. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. That hit me because it is okay, even within the church, to desire or to aspire to leadership in the church. It shouldn't be like this horrible, you know what, I'm a great leader at work, at the office, I'm a great leader outside of church, but at church, I'm just, you know, I just don't want to do anything, I want to be completely passive, or it feels wrong to hey, this church is horrible, but I feel like my leadership skills could help make it better. What do you guys think about that? So like on the aspirational side, it's almost like people are very skeptical of people that are aspirational. Right. People that want to do well. Like it's, it's that like high school mindset of like, oh, you studied for the test? What a loser. <laughs> like it's like, wait, you wanted to do well on this test? And again, when you look back on those people in high school, like the people that studied for the test and got good grades where they're at in life. And then the people that like made fun of the people for studying and and trying really hard. Um, And I guess for other people, it's like when things come naturally to them, they don't have to work hard. And that's the other thing as well. Like that, that struck me as well, Derek, because it's like, that that is a good thing. It is a noble task Mm -hmm. to want to aspire to that. But for a lot of alpha people, they walk into church and they like turn that alpha part off. Because they're alpha everywhere else in their life. And then they walk into church and be like, okay, this is where, you know, betas succeed, I guess, to a degree. So Matt, hop in. You're giggling because, you know, hop in and say no, me before I, I think, get canceled. No, I think, no I, I, think, I think that's a good point. And I think to Derek's point about aspiring to be that, I think even, even pastors who are well-known will take that. And I, not even that it's intentional or malicious, but there's this, there's this underpinning in society where it's like, you can't really want that. Like that's not something you should want. And so you hear stories of pastors and I'm convinced that most of them are not real of, I didn't want this. I didn't want this role. It was thrust upon me. It's like, dude, you're not George Washington. Now here I, it's like, I don't believe that. Cause like every pastor says it. And I mean, there's dozens in Oklahoma that I can think of. It's like, we're so afraid to say, yeah, I want to, I want to lead in the church and maybe that's being a pastor. Maybe that's not, but aspiring to lead in the church is, I, I think something that Paul is calling us to do. 
uh, because it's, we should be seeking after those noble things. So we should be aspiring to lead in the church. And uh, to Zach's point, like, this is very convicting. I'm not a, I'm not a pastor in a church. I am a pastor to my family. Mm-hmm. And like this, this is, these first seven verses are just convicting to me as a husband and a father, because I've, I've got to, I've got to aspire to lead in a biblical way there at home. Yeah. And I'd add one thing to that, which is, you know, like Joby Martin, for instance, and a lot of good pastors that you'd respect, or at least that I do talk a lot about their primary role being prayer for the church, mm-hmm. studying the word, bringing the word in the right way to the congregation. And that means that they need leadership because churches are organizations of people and there's all sorts of things happening and, and all of you are created in God's image with gifts that you're not supposed to neglect. So we should be bringing that to the establishment and using it. Uh, and to that uh, last thing on that to me is, um, I think you're right, Zach, because somebody, well, right now, I think the, the pressure on a modern day pastor is to be a real estate expert when it comes to building their church. They have to be a phenomenal divider of God's word between truth. They have to, in another one, being a phenomenal leader of a multi-level organization, right? Be this outgoing super leader and then fill this other role and this other role. So I think it's okay if I'm looking at this saying, um, able to teach. Okay. So if you're looking at a pastor and he's able to teach, great. He doesn't have to be doesn't have to be, don't put that on him to be a real estate expert and understand construction and real estate investment and tax law and all this other stuff for his church. Hey, if there are other qualified leaders who can step into that role and lead successfully and well inside a church, that's great. So let me actually ask, and I don't know that I actually believe this, but I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate a little bit here. So let's say, you know, you've got these, these standards here of what, what a pastor should do. And maybe you're, you're talking about a lead pastor or something like that when you hire out all the other things you're bad at, like that makes sense in a modern business sense, right? Mm -hmm. So when you go to get your MBA or when you go to all these other places, you read Harvard Business Review and it's like, hey, you know, I hired out my weaknesses and I just focus on my strengths. Mm -hmm. And I I really talk about all the time. Part of me is like, okay, but if you hired me to come and do like speaking and teaching or something like that for a little bit, because that's like my gifting, like I'm not gonna have to give an account one day for how your flock was shepherded. True. You are. And so, so for me, I, I kind of feel like it's a little bit of a catch 22 because as a business person that's read, you know, Jim Collins is good to great and all these other different things. It's like, yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Like hire these things out. But it's like, what about your own personal development as a pastor? Because there are the things you are gifted with that God gave you on purpose so that you could do the job that he laid out for you. But then it's like, do we just ignore all those other parts? Do we just create this org chart structure? where everyone's kind of like got their own specific thing. Like, I guess I don't know where I would really fall on that because I, well, I guess I do. I would lean more towards the work chart thing to where it's just like, I suck at this. Like, this is a complete waste of my time to do this part of this job. But to a degree, that's their responsibility. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think I'd put a little twist on that because I think if you're just hiring out the things that you're not good at, how, I, I think you're, you're mocking God in a sense that he can't show how powerful and merciful and graceful he is and to work through your weaknesses to show that it's not about you. It's not about a person is, is, is God coming forth from your church. And I think if we, if you just hire everything out, it's like, well, we got this. We don't need God. We got it. Cause I'm going to let Kyle do this cause he's really good. And I, I think, I think that's a dangerous place to be. T- to me, I think it goes back to a hard issue. 
Um, because if a pastor's heart is to pastor a church and lead them closer to Christ, I feel like that's one thing. But if a pastor's heart is to grow a multi-level gigantic organization, that's a different thing. Yeah. Because then it's not, um, you're not growing a church for the church's sake. If growth comes as a result of good, solid teaching and a good, solid man who's in a leadership position and there are needs of the organization that would take him mission drift away from leading and teaching the organization, I'm okay with an org chart. Well, see, that's where I feel like most people on the outside, and again, I've, I've kind of adjusted my opinions on this, uh, you know, big church doesn't mean bad church, big right. church doesn't mean unhealthy church, right. those types of things. And I remember, you, you know, Zach, you brought up Joby Martin earlier, like, I, I think it was the first time he was on my show, you know, when people would come up to him after service or something like that and ask him for help, because Derek, to your point, like, you know, everybody is dumping the worst part of their life onto their pastor, right? right? And so the pastor is having to deal with this person cheating on their spouse or this person losing their job or this person, you know, dealing with, you know, mourning a child that passed away. Like it's the worst stuff possible, right? That's why pastor burnout is such a, like a legitimate thing. But, you know, I remember Joby saying like, he would ask these people, Hey, do you want me or do you want help? Mm. And so he was just talking about like, if you want me in a meeting with you and your wife, like going through that, like counseling is not my gift. It's not, it's not in my wheelhouse. Like I can get you help, but you have to tell me, do you want me or do you want help? But when you see the figurehead up there, you know, with the mic attached to their face, you think like, oh, that's where help comes from. Right. And so I am sympathetic to the argument of like, hey, in order for us to run faster or in order for us to be better overall, like we need people in those areas to do those things. Because I just, I go back to this and then, you know, whoever wants to hop in, you know, this part, you know, uh, where it's talking about not being quarrelsome uh, and self-controlled and those different things. It's like, okay, there are some people that are naturally not quarrelsome and there are some people that were born to fight. And so it's like, you know, the not quarrelsome person needs to, you know, turn it up a bit. And the person that always wants to fight needs to turn it down typically a lot. Right. And so it's like, that is not your excuse to be like, well, I'm quarrelsome by nature. So I guess I'm disqualified. It's like, no, you, you just got the blueprint for the crap you need to work on. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, that, that's, that's kind of where I go into. It's like, again, that's where I say I'm sympathetic to kind of the org chart approach, because it's like, you want the best people to be doing the best things in the best way, because for the health of the flock overall, like, I think that that's better personally. I mean, I'm, I'm open to critique of my position, but like it, that just seems to make more sense to me, even though I'm the one that brought up the opposite position to begin with. Well, kind of like what Derek was saying. It's like, it's a hard issue. By what standard? Yeah. By what standard are we governing this thing? Like, is it, is it for growth? So, okay, cool. We're going to bring in a, a hot social media marketer guy that can, that is really great at SEO. That's going to put our stuff out there and we're going to get a lot of people butts in the seats. Or is it because... Like John MacArthur is a good example. When he started at, at um, uh, Grace Community Church in California, and if I just butchered that name, I apologize. I think that's the name of his church. Um, that is not my church, so I don't go there. So when he started, he said, I'm going to come in. I'm going to teach line by line. And they were like, no, that'll never work. People are going to leave. And he's like, no, I mean, that's, how, that's what I'm supposed to do. And he did, and the church grew. And so it, like, my point is, it's, it's by what standard are we doing things? And he said, I don't care if people leave. I'm going to teach the way the Bible calls me to teach. Right. Well, so, so to that end, literally last night I watched a video and I can't remember the guy's name. I, I don't have the video with me, but this was a pastor basically talking about expository line by line preaching. And he said, if you build your sermon content off of your life, okay? So you create these sermons where you're the center point. Hey, I was on a plane and I had this conversation with somebody. Hey, my kid's soccer practice, this happened, those types of things. Then the church is dependent upon your life experiences. And it's not dependent upon the scripture. And the, the guy was making the point. It's like, look, your life is not the gospel. The gospel is the gospel. Mm -hmm. And so that doesn't mean 
<coughs> excuse me, that doesn't mean that you can, you know, completely dismiss everything that happens in your life. Because obviously if you, if you experience something and that would help somebody else understand a segment of the gospel or a segment of the good news, like, sure, you know, go ahead and throw that in there. But it's like, that, that's not the point. You're not the point. And I think whenever pastors make themselves the point, they are teaching their flock to do the same thing. Like they're saying like, hey, when you read the Bible, you, you should think of you the whole time. Like, and, and then you have to have somebody smack you across the face and say, hey, you know, reminder, the Bible's not about you. Well, then it becomes a blueprint. And I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to leave out names, but I went to a leadership conference a few years ago in this pastor. He was telling this story. It was about his family. I was like, that's, that's a pretty good, this isn't a church service. It's, it's a cool story. And then somebody shared this pastor talking on stage, maybe six months later, completely different pastor telling the exact same story, just changed the names for his kids. And then like recently, a couple weeks ago, a pastor that I actually know was speaking at a, at a, a congregation somewhere in the Southeast and he told the exact same story. And I'm thinking, whoa, what is happening here? Like we have not, we have not talked at all about the Bible and we've done this 30 minute story about ourselves to your, so to your point, like that, that, that though kind of goes to, I know this isn't what this letter is about, but like Paul talks about that again, like people want to hear what they want to hear. Obviously I'm paraphrasing, but like people, people like that stuff. And so that becomes the blueprint and that, man, that's a weird, weird thing to, to experience. Yeah. It's just a weird place to be. And then as pastors, again, you know, <clears throat> creating content is hard. Mm-hmm. And if you're a pastor, you have to do that on a weekly basis. And, you know, you're going to be up there for, you know, 30 to 60 minutes talking about a particular subject and you have to come off smart. You have to come off as, as beneficial. And, you know, that, that really is a, a kind of a tough thing. Uh, one thing that I did want to ask Zach specifically, because this kind of goes back to, you know, the fact that you've been a Christian for such a short period of time, that line where it's basically talking about uh, he must not be a recent convert mm. or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Like, are you offended when you hear something like that? Because like, you know, <coughs> excuse me, guys, but you're, you know, you're a smart guy, like you're a well-respected guy, like those types of things. And so it's like, almost like, Hey, well, why can't I have that job? Like, I'm just curious, like as a new Christian, like how you feel about that. It scares me. Uh, think about, <laughs> think about some of the people that you know in your life, whether they're public figures or personal figures that come out with these claims. And you just sit back and watch, and you know everybody is. So when I think about what happened to me, it's you know you're still going to go through a lot of periods of questioning things. No question about that. You know, you, uh, I, I live in a world that's very practical, and, and there's a lot of scientific stuff happening and all that sort of thing. So you're going to be constantly confronted by stuff that's going to pressure your position. And I recognize that. So when I read that, what I think is, <clears throat> absolutely. And I think I'm just starting on that journey, and I know it's going to be a while before I would ever feel like I was in a position to, to, to lead like that. So it's humbling, honestly. So I guess I'm curious for, for the guys here that have been Christians for a long time, like, how do you feel about that section to a degree? Like, do you, do you think that's, well, obviously don't, you know, counteract Paul, but <laughs> like, well, what you, do you think? You as long can, as it lines you, up with Paul, you can counteract right. Paul, but you're wrong. I, you, I would agree with that. I, yeah. I mean, okay. So by what standard, I think brings a lot of things into view. Like if you believe that the Bible is the inherent word of God and that the black letters are just as important as the red letters, because it's all God breathed, then you would, you would look at this and go, okay, it's there because God wants it there and he doesn't want inexperienced people just going 
off the handle because they're doing something on a whim. Like you look at a guy like um, Mark Driscoll, very, very smart, intelligent, fiery, passionate guy, really good at teaching the word. He got into trouble because he jumped in feet first, had no accountability, had no Paul figure in his life speaking into him, you know, pushing back on some of the stuff he was doing. He like, and I think that got him into some trouble. And I think you could probably find a bunch of examples there. I think that, I mean, experience matters. And being a pastor is, is like you said, like you will, you will be held accountable for right. that in eternity right. before God. So, well, I'll add this. Okay. So when I read this, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit. First, Zach, I appreciate your perspective of that is, um, no, I'm not going to actually be offended by that. I'm going to be encouraged by that in the sense that, no, there's more I need to learn or a longer journey until, um, until I feel personally responsible or mature enough to lead others inside a church. So I appreciate that perspective. Um, I think from a, somebody who's probably been a longer believer, I, um, I think it is like, you know, I, I go back to, because I'm probably a kid in, in my maturity level, I think about somebody who went to like a church camp, right? Mm. And so you got a 17-year-old who recently gave their life to Christ, and then at 18, they're going, I'm ready to lead a church. No, brah. You got a lot to learn. You know what I mean? And the other piece is that they don't fall into condemnation of the devil, because we who have been believers for a long time, I believe nobody's good enough. Truth is, I deserve to go to hell. Like, I deserve it. And so... But I also understand the grace of Jesus Christ. And so a young believer or a new believer feels like, okay, oftentimes, not, I'm not putting that on every new believer, but oftentimes it is, hey, I'm, I'm converting, I'm following Jesus Christ. But then guess what? Maybe they backslide a little bit. And then suddenly they do feel that condemnation and they, well, then it's, it's a quick backslide at that point if they're not mature in their faith because it is, well, if I've sinned in this one area, I'm on, I'm on rung four and I've fallen down to the bottom. What's the point of even climbing again? Mm-hmm. And so if you put somebody like that in a leadership position, in an elder position, an overseer position, oh man, it could, it could quickly steer the direction of the church or mm-hmm. have a, 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 another impact. I'll, I'll say this. I'm going to skip to verse seven. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. You know what's interesting? So I, I took that outsiders, looked it up. That specifically means non-Christians. Not just people outside of this specific church, but it means non-Christians. What do you think? What do you think that is? Uh, I would say it's because we're, we're called to be a witness. Like, I mean, the story of the Bible is God telling his chosen people to be like, I'm giving you these laws so you can be a witness to the world. And if the, if there's any impropriety or things that you're doing that are outside of my law, like the world sees that and they, and like that is a stumbling block for them. And then that, that is also a, well, you're just a hypocrite. Like that's not a good witness. And so I think we're, we're called to be witnesses to the outside world. The, the most crucial piece of that being the pastor. Like if, if the pastor can't even you know, look good or, or seem to be doing good to the outside world, like that's what, what chance do we have? Well, I think, Matt, there's a key distinction with that. And the distinction is, you know, when you hear about these people where it's like, you know, my Jesus, people like my Jesus, they like, you know, my Christ or my gospel. It's like, okay, that, that's dangerous because your job is not to make the gospel seem as attractive as possible. It is your job to describe it as accurately as possible. And so with that in mind, you know, 
if you're going to be well thought of by outsiders, it can't be because of how much like an outsider you are. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, there are people that believe the gospel to their bones and they don't waver on any parts of the gospel. They don't waver on any part of the Bible, even when it's icky in terms of modern culture, they stick to it, but then there's still something very attractive about them. There's something that's very, um, there was a concept that I never really understood that when people would say like, Hey, just live a good life. And then people will come to you and ask you, Hey, why are you so happy all the time? And why are your kids so well behaved and blah, blah, blah. And then you can say, well, I've got this secret. It's called Christianity. And then like, you know, it's, it's like this thing that you pitch to somebody and it's like, you know, it's like, dude, this isn't a power washer. Like, Hey, how'd you get your brick to look so good on your house? Like, so then you're waiting for someone to ask you, like, even just, you know, that's like passive sales, you know, passive salesmen are pe- poor salesmen essentially. Yeah. And so I think that's the interesting thing as well, Derek, like to even bring up that point is like non-Christians need to be attracted to you, but then still almost want to reject your gospel but they don't want to reject you. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. A hundred percent. I think they can disagree with you, but I think the consistency that you're talking about is like, I'm going to consistently preach the word, but like, I'm not going to change. So, well, I'll, I'll say it this way. It's kind of like Steph Curry. Okay. I don't want to like Steph Curry. I don't want to like him. I think okay. he's a little conceited. I can't stand the way he puts a towel over his head and juice on his mouthpiece and all that stuff. Right. Like it drives me crazy. I want if I, if he was here and I was a lot bigger, I'd punch him in the face. But, um, <laughs> truth is, dadgummit, he's kind of a good guy. You know what I mean? Like from the outside, you look at it and you're like, okay, he's the husband of one wife. I don't see him being absolutely ridiculous in his lifestyle. He's not endorsing these crazy things. His kids seem to like him. Exactly. You know what I mean? So it's like, dadgummit, I guess I have to. I can can not want to, but I kind of do. So it is, hey, I'm going to reject your Christianity, I'm going to re- reject your worldview and perspective, but dadgummit, I still kind of like you. It's like you reluctantly like that person. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so exactly right. When it's like, you know, it was, it, even to, to that end, it's like you can hate the Golden State Warriors, you can hate Steph Curry, but then, like, game's got to recognize game at some right. point. It's like, if you have a best shooters of all time list and Steph Curry's not at the top of that, you're a hater. Like, exactly, like, exactly. You, you can't take your favorite player and put them at the top of that list. You just have to recognize and so, so that's almost to a certain degree here. Like you just have to recognize that somebody's a good person, right? Like, Hey, I don't like the fact that you think homosexuals shouldn't be able to, you know, have sex with each other. I don't, I don't like the fact that you think that, you know, this lifestyle that they're leading is, is, you know, sinful or something like that. But it's like, man, I got to respect you because you seem to be crushing it at, at home. Like you're in good shape. Like your wife genuinely seems to love and respect you. Your kids seem to genuinely love and respect you. And I think that's a, that's a really good thing. I, I, one Go thing ahead, I'd add on that, I, cause I agree with that hundred percent. I was thinking about CS Lewis said that if you, if you encountered somebody who genuinely exhibited these skill sets, right? Not skill sets, but maybe traits, yeah. self-control, gentleness, you know, all of those types of things. He said, you would, you would be attracted to that person in such a, a different way from everybody else that you almost can't deny it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think everybody has a really good BS litmus test when they're walking around and, and seeing. I remember somebody that we all know said all these, before he became a Christian, they always seemed so happy. And from his perspective, it just seemed like a thin veil and it mm. was false. Mm. But then as he started to dig in and get to know these people, he recognized in certain individuals just by their behavior, how real it really was. And then you're just drawn in. Was this person you? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, was that your way of like, no. sneaking that in? No. No. But I, I, I think to this whole point here and to the very beginning of this discussion, if you're really doing this, people are going to be attracted to it because when they go back home and they see that things aren't working right, mm-hmm. they're going to remember it. 
And I think that that's a good thing to keep in mind when we're looking for leaders of the church, which this might be a good time to get into uh, verses 8 through 13. Yep. Where we're talking about qualifications for deacons. So I'm not going to read it here. Uh, if somebody wants to read it, feel free. But the, the thing that we look at here is there seems to be some disagreement over the, the gender that deacons can be. Okay, like our deaconess is an actual thing. And so as I'm reading this section, I read four different commentaries when it was talking about uh, when, when they write it down. Um, sorry. So when it was talking about uh, their wives, where it's like, okay, uh, they're referring to wives or wives could just be women in general. The, the difference is, is when, when you get into verse 12, let deacons each be the husband mm-hmm. of one wife. and so. In verse 11, it says their wives, and then people are like, oh, well, that, that means we can have deaconesses, and we can have uh, women leaders in the church that are leaders by name, not just leaders by action. But then the very next verse, you know, there, there's no confusing the, the word that's used here, even in the Greek or Aramaic or Hebrew, that this is husband of one wife. And so I think that even came up, uh, Ryan, on a, on a previous episode, was talking about deaconesses. And so I guess the, the thing I do want to talk about is, like, if you have a church that has female deacons, are they abiding by this like letter of law? I, I'm, I'm basically asking that because all the commentaries I read said that this was talking about wives and basically saying and wives and women and that women could be deacons. But then nobody was talking about that when it got to verse 12, when it specifically mentioned husbands. And so I'm not asking from a legalistic standpoint. I'm just like, okay, when y'all were reading through this and when y'all were going through your commentaries, like what, what did you see there? Because like, for me, it's like, I, I don't want to default to, yeah, women can't have any leadership roles in the church whatsoever. But I mean, verses one through seven are very explicit in terms of the gender, and this one seems to be a little bit confused. Nobody wants to go into I'm, that first. Nobody yeah, wants I'm, to be canceled. I, I no, I, I think, I think we've talked about it just in the last thirty minutes. Like, if you believe the Bible is true, sometimes it's hard to read, and sometimes it's hard to go, okay, that's what God said. That's a really hard pill to swallow, and I think just. Looking, looking through this, there's other examples within the New Testament of how the church is laid out. Um, but yeah, I, I, think I, I, John Calvin, obviously, this is a commentary that I have. He, he agrees with, with, with your assessment is that that's pretty clear. And to me, that's also pretty clear. That's what I wrote down too, Matt, is I wrote hard decisions. Like sometimes the Bible puts, puts you in a place to where you're faced with difficult decisions. And if somebody does not openly submit themselves to God's word, then they could be offended. They could rise up. They could like, hey, truth is, I, I say this, right? Truth is, uh, let deacons each be the husband of one wife. That's not really my decision to make. It, it appears as though that decision is made already. And so therefore, I just have to live out an existing decision. Um, what gets really tricky, Kyle, not to derail the, the uh, men or women, is husband of one wife. Is that one wife at a time? Is that one wife ever? Is that divorced and remarried? Is that, what does that mean? So I actually did read several commentaries on that specific part. <clears throat> that was basically talking about, hey, I'm a one woman man. So sexually, I'm a one woman man. This Again, just the ones that I read, which, by the way, I read the, the Moody commentary, the John MacArthur commentary, Reformation study Bible, ESV study Bible, and then I've got you know, stuff that I look at online. And all of them said, this is not disqualifying for somebody who's divorced for biblical cause and remarried. This is not disqualifying for a widower who's now 
you know, remarried or something like that. It's also not disqualifying for people that were called to singleness because again, Paul and Timothy mm-hmm. both single. Right. And so the, that's what I read is that the husband of one wife is talking specifically. Now that is still gendered language, but that is talking specifically about somebody that is sexually involved with one woman that they're not, you know, basically spreading their seed around the, the community. Interesting. So I read, I read, I didn't read those commentaries. I read Matthew Henry. Um, and in his, right, he's got three points. It is, um, number one, it could be agreed. The language is one woman, man is the way it kind of interprets into today's language, but it is number one, one wife now. So not polygamy, not multiple wives, not all that. Right. Okay. Number two, one wife only ever. Meaning that would disqualify divorced and remarried if it was not for biblical context that um it gets a little sticky when it gets to uh widows and widowers um i read another commentary where one guy said okay if that's the case if it disqualifies um a somebody who is divorced and remarried that's the only absolute thing when it comes to qualification for overseers and qualifications for deacons that that's the only absolute because you could at some point in your life be quarrelsome and now you're not but if you've been married and divorced, you're out of the, you're out of the ranks. Um, but then he went on in his commentary to say, but however, if somebody's been divorced and remarried several times, maybe that should. And it's like, well, where, where do you draw so, that line? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, hey, you're trying to interpret one piece and then where, who's, the, who's the interpreter of the rule? Okay, so one wife only now, one wife only ever, or show devotion, um, pure in sexuality with one woman not running around town. So how, how you interpret that, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think you let the Bible interpret the Bible and what Kyle was talking about, like biblical reasons for getting divorced. Like if you're looking at that and you're not, and it's not just someone who's flippantly getting divorced because now there's a, you know, a a law that says, well, whatever, whatever, whatever you deem appropriate for the reason for divorce you can use. Like if it's not in here, you can't do it. And I would argue if somebody's, somebody's been divorced three times, there's a pretty good chance that it's that they're not all on biblical grounds. What about two times? I, I, I don't know. I'm just saying it could be. Yeah. Where's that I, line? But where, I think, I think I, good to go back to what I was saying, like you, I think you have to take those examples and look at them and say, where did they come from? Like, why did they happen? Let's go back to the word. What does the word say about marriage and divorce? And then we can make our decision. And it might not be what we want to hear, but. It, here's something I did find interesting about that, or at least in my, in my mind, this was an interesting correlation is qualification for overseer, qualification for deacon, talk about a, the husband of one wife, a one woman man, which is uh, showing devotion, right? Because what is the church to Christ? The bride. Right. It's the bride. It's the bride of Christ. And so here it is, it, it could be interpreted of, hey, a husband who shows devotion to his wife as Christ showed devotion to his bride, the church. Yeah. Maybe, maybe as the newer person from this perspective, it's a little bit different for me. But when I think about, for instance, like a Billy Graham, speaking to people all over the world, he used the Bible in its, in its literal sense in many cases. What is evident based on the context of everything else that you can read? I mean, Paul's pretty clear from a biblical perspective of what this probably means in other places and here. So I know there's a lot of time spent on picking through these specific points, but I guess from my perspective, it seems to be pretty clear. If you're aligned with a biblical marriage and a situation, uh, that should be pretty evident. 
so I guess, uh, you know, th- this is something that's interesting to hear from my perspective, digging into the details, because um, it seems like it'd be, it'd be pretty clear from a well, and as, as we get a little bit later in this letter, Zach, like there are, there are times where it's like, okay, are we digging into all these words almost too much? And so mm-hmm. we'll, we'll mm-hmm. certainly get there. But one thing that, that comes to mind again, I'm, I'm interested because of, because of your perspective, but I heard, I don't remember if it was a commentary about this or something in general, but it's like pro- modern Christians are actually completely okay with polygamy. Mm. And I was like, I was like, wait a minute, here we go. But he's like, but we just do polygamy one at a time. In modernity, because so many Christians are divorced and remarried, and I was just like, "Oh no, I think he's right." Because like, <laughs> how many pastors are completely okay? Because again, if a gay couple were to come into the church and say, "We would like to get married here, and we would like you to perform our wedding," that's when they're going to stand on principle. But then, when you have people that are, you know, on their second or third marriage, and the marriages didn't devolve or dissolve because of biblical causes, those pastors are just well, it's a heterosexual marriage, so I guess we'll go ahead and have them, you know, have the woman wear a white dress, even though that doesn't make any sense anymore. Uh, and then, like, let's, let's just, like, pretend like this is an okay thing. That's always been a very uncomfortable thing for me because Christians are always, like, it's really hard for me to celebrate people's second marriages. Like, I love my friends, uh, and I love, well, Matt, go ahead. Like, but that's, uh, isn't that uh, kind of weird, it, like, thinking about 100%, it? 100%. It, like, we have to remember, these are institutions run by fallen human beings we want to pick what sounds good to us and we want to cast off what might be offensive or hurtful. So like I've never been in a gay relationship. I can easily stand on that footing, but if I've been divorced three times, that's no big deal. I'm probably going to look the other way when my associate pastor is going through his fourth divorce and I'm just going to be like, ah, no, okay, no big deal. And I think Kirk Cameron said it the best a few years ago. He said like when, when homosexuality came up, homosexuality came up, like how does the church um, deal with that in the public sector. And he, he had a very like piercing, uh, words for the church. Like, I think we should stand on the Bible, but we should also look inside our own house. And we want to, we want to preach about homosexuality, but then we're also going into the church, handing out uh, divorces like candy. Right. Like we don't even, we don't think twice about it. It's like the modern church has bought no fault divorce. Right. Like, this is great. Yeah. It's, it's hard for me. Uh, like you talked about how did you originally come to faith and all that sort of thing. For me, what it was is I stopped reading things about the Bible, mm. like C.S. Lewis, et cetera. And I remember distinctly, I took a trip with my wife. We were pregnant with our first child and we did one of these little, you know, go away for a couple of days kind of thing. And we drove through the Florida Keys and I had the New Testament with me and I was reading through it for the first time. I thought, wow, this is extremely convicting and not what I expected. It's very clear and it just hits you. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think from my perspective, these people that have these opinions, are they really engaging directly and absorbing the information for themselves? Well, and I also think from an outsider's perspective, again, you know, going back earlier, uh, as Derek pointed out in verse seven, when you're talking about outsiders, a lot of people, and this is maybe an indictment on the way we do church modernity. If your church feels just like culture, if everybody in the church acts just like everybody else in culture, then why do we need you? Like I can just go do culture, right? I can go do all the stuff I'm, I'm used to. I don't need to show up in your building at a specific time on Sunday and do a specific thing for a specific allotted amount of time. Like, well, like I don't need to do that. And it's the churches that are, that are growing today are the ones that are like the expository preaching, the, the verse by verse. Those are the churches that are exploding because it's like, okay, like you're playing a secular song to lead off your worship set. Like 
the band that wrote that song that's better at it and they're better musicians than you. I just heard them play that on Apple Music. I don't need to hear you sing it and sprinkle in a couple of like theological words over the top of it. It's just like, what, what is attractive about what's happening here when y'all are just as divorced as all, the, all of my friends, y'all are just as messed up. You just pretend for an hour every Sunday that you're not. Does that make sense? I have a lot too of harsh? Have a no, lot of, yeah, not too harsh. Here. I, I do too. Yeah. I do too. I, I'll, I'll say it this way. Uh, I'll sum up that kind of, uh, in my mind, is God called, the, um, God called the Israelites to stand against the culture of their time. He gave them clear delineation. He gave them Mosaic law, which was completely radical when you look at the context of the other laws and rules of um, kingdoms or, or cultures of that time. He, he clearly created delineated lines, do this, don't do that, right? It's not that different. When we look at Paul's letter to Timothy here, and he says, be this, look for this, look for this, obviously he's calling out specific things in a culture that were different than culture. And I think. Um, the New Testament calls us to also stand against or be clearly different than culture, stand, do these things, stand these ways, um, so that we can stand against the cultural norms that we're called to change, and we can influence and change culture. But, the, of course, the draw is always towards culture. And so when Christians begin to participate in cultural values they're called to stand against, we lose all influence. And you lose credibility. Credibility, I influence, all of it. And that comes from, I, I heard that from uh, Ray Vander, Vander Lane, I think, on That the World May Know. I'm telling you, it's awesome. Well, look at, I remember going back to however many years ago when Ireland uh, approved abortion, legalized abortion. And a lot of people were looking at the, the Catholics in that country like, hey, what's your problem? It's like, well, they, they, <clears throat> they basically lost their credibility by, you know, basically raping kids and then moving the rapists around the country and around the world. And it's like, so whenever they came out and said, yeah, this is immoral, the, the public was like, is it? Is it? Yeah. Uh, was it immoral when you were washing out a boy's mouth after you mouth raped him and pretended it was holy water? Was it, was it, you know, immoral whenever you raped a kid with a crucifix? Like, you know, all things that we have on file that actually happened by Catholic priests, right? And so it's like, that when you lose your moral standing and you're also trying to live downstream of culture, it's like, that's a witch's brew of absolute and complete nonsense. Like you're not going to have any legs to stand on, but Matt, you, you were saying you had a lot of thoughts. Well, on I this. think, I think just going back to the Bible and how people get to like, they skip over this. Well, I think pastors don't talk about this. Pastors don't teach through first Timothy. Uh, n not all of them. I'm just saying like the modern seeker sensitive type of church, like they tend to skip over this stuff. And I think that speaks to a larger problem. Like you look at the Reformation, one of the problems of the Reformation was like common people didn't have the Bible. Mm -hmm. They couldn't read it in their own language. They had the, they had the, basically the Latin Vulgate. And there's a few other translations, but basically they were relying on priests, bishops, the Pope to tell them what God said. And I think if you fast forward to now, we have supercomputers in our pocket, but we have convinced ourselves that these celebrity pastors have the calling from God, they have the expertise, and they know it, so I don't have to open my Bible because they're going to tell me what it says. And then they're skipping whole sections of the Bible that we don't get, and so then when you come across 1 Timothy and it says, husband of, of one wife, you're like, wait, what? What could that possibly mean? It couldn't <laughs> yeah. mean what it says. And uh, so then, you, but, but 
to Zach's point, what he said earlier about like, I read the Bible and it was like, that's, I think every believer goes through that where right. you can listen to C.S. Lewis, you can listen to Calvin and you can like, you can listen to really good people talk about the Bible, but if you're not getting into the actual word, reading it for yourself, looking at good, solid um, translations, like seeing it, like you're missing, you're missing a whole, the meat of what God is telling us. Well, that goes into, okay, verse 13 here of 1 Timothy 3, right? When he's still talking about qualifications for deacons, and he says, for those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also a great confidence in the faith. Faith for themselves is exactly what you're talking about, Matt, right? Like, I think there is a conviction and a desire for us to have a good standing in the faith for ourselves, not reading things about the Bible, reading the Bible, not under, like, not having a concept of God's word. No, reading God's word and hearing what he says. And I think that's a great point. I mean, that's convicting to me and it's convicting to me as a father in the house to make sure that, hey, my household is not their foundation of relationship with Jesus is based upon God's word first and foremost, primarily. And then let's go build upon that. You know, as a side note to the, to the culture comment, just thinking, you know, kind of detaching for a second, it seems like every generation has had some sort of a challenge. You know, early on, it was just this whole, whole new thing that you had to embrace and it was extremely countercultural. But what about the recent generations, even here in this country, where you know, you were surrounded by Christian culture, but how many people were not necessarily false converts, but just didn't really believe, but it's easy to get by. And now you hear about all these statistics saying that Christianity is on the decline and all this sort of thing. But what people are saying now is that it's actually on the incline, but it's for people that are actually having to put themselves out there. It's real, genuine Christianity is actually increasing, but we're seeing some decrease in what might be a false convert. And then you also, when you see those same statistics about the incline or decline of Christianity around the world, obviously the West is seen as, you know, taking a nosedive. And then you see Sub-Saharan Africa Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. Southeast Asia, like these are places where it's exploding. And these are places where in a lot of times it's dangerous to be a Christian to where if you don't believe it, you're going to get checked, right? And so in, in America, we'll get checked and then we just crumble, right? Do you actually believe that? And then we give this mealy mouth, like, well, you know, I want to be known for what I'm for, not what I'm against. And I just, you know, I don't really want to talk about that. And, you know, I'm just about love, man. You know, I'm about love. And then you ask like an African, like, they're like, no, no, that's dumb. That's stupid. Like, we're not going to do that. Why? Bible says, and I believe, like, I believe God's word. I believe that's true. And also I'm scared of God a little bit. Yep. And, you know, I'm... I don't, I'm not scared of culture nearly as much as I'm scared about God. Oh my gosh. I think that's such a great point, but it's like, it's because they're, they're reading the word that they would get killed for reading and they don't have it in this big study Bible. They just, they may have like the new Testament or they may have, you know, something that they've got to conceal and, but they're reading it. And when Zach's talking about a Christian culture, I think sometimes that's a safety net. Like I live in Oklahoma, so I'm a Christian. Mm-hmm. And I thought that as a kid, I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We went to church every Sunday. I thought I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm going to heaven because I'm a Christian. Yep. And there was no thought of why am I really going to heaven? Mm-hmm. Like I'm a good, I'm a good, good kid. And, but I didn't read the Bible. I just, I just fell back on that cultural safety net of I live in this culture, so I must be deduced that I must be a Christian. And then I also had a moment where I was like, man, this, this is really, 
this is really clear on a lot of stuff. Like, this Bible is pretty cool. Like, some of it is really hard to read, but if you're not reading your Bible, you're all, if somebody pushes back on you and you have a belief because some, somebody said it was what the Bible said and somebody pushes back on that, if you don't have this solid ground of the Bible and biblical knowledge to stand on, yeah, you're going you're gonna to fall flat on your face or straight backwards. Right. And what that's called philosophically is an appeal to authority, mm-hmm. right? And so if you're constantly appealing to authority, well, that always works really well until the authority is disproven. We've seen that a lot since 2020. All the things that were conspiracy theories in 2020 have been confirmed in the last couple of years, but all these people were appealing to authority the entire time. And so that's, that's why I got so frustrated last year when uh, Matt Walsh went on the Joe Rogan experience and, you know, they're talking about, they're sparring about marriage and all those different things. And Matt Walsh just refused to talk about the biblical definition of marriage. And his argument, which I understand, I think I've used before in other contexts is, well, Joe Rogan doesn't think the Bible is real. It doesn't think it's the word of God. And so if I base my arguments in the Bible, then the entire uh, argument falls apart. And pragmatically, I understand that. But it's like you're appealing to societal authority and the right ordering of society. Where do we get the authority to call that right? Like, where do we get that? You have to ground your morality, your authority, your worldview in something and if you're grounding it in the opinions of someone, well, what if that someone was Ravi Zacharias? Right. And then after he, he died, he was found out to be a, a tremendously you know, deviant sexual being. Whoopsie, the, your appeal to authority goes out the window. I remember years ago when I was working with this organization doing men's ministry stuff, and their entire men's ministry was based off the works of John Eldridge, mm. someone that I happen to love and respect and is a great mentor to yeah. me. But I always said to them, what if John Eldridge chops his wife's head off and rolls it down the hallway and then starts setting, you know, houses in the neighborhood on fire? Whoopsie, your entire ministry goes in the tank because all you do is hit play on John Eldridge videos and you let John Eldridge pray, pray for it and you let John Eldridge create all your content. It's like your appeal to, like I tell you all the time, I can't be your authority either. Mm-hmm. Don't mm-hmm. appeal to Untaunted Life of Man's podcast. Don't appeal to me. Like I will let you down. If I haven't yet, it's coming. But like we're so comfortable with appealing to authority when we've got the authority right here in front of us. It's true. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. And I I think, I think to take that a step further, we don't have people in the church who are acting like the Bereans and taking everything that a pastor says and saying, is this really what it says in here? Is this what scripture says? Or is this what my pastor is saying? And I, that's what we get, we get, we get to where we're at because of things like that. Well, okay. So let's go back here. Um, first Timothy three ten, and let them, those are deacons, right? Qualifications for deacon. Let them also be tested first. And, and I, I don't believe that that is testing as for, Hey, how well do they hand out and pass out the basket? <laughs> hey, let's make sure. Let's see. How do they hand out communion? Do they do, they do it? Hands. Do they not? You know what I mean? Like, how do they do on checking in kids? Do they do a good job or not? Like that is to your point, Kyle and, and Matt is, Test their faith. What authority are they appealing to? How well can they stand on their own two feet, on their own faith in the way that they are? And, and that's a conviction to me, and, and hopefully it's a conviction to, to all of us and, and anybody listening. And, hey, let's test ourselves. Like, let's continually grow and develop and test ourselves. And I, and, and, um, I think that is relevant. So how, how, how can you test somebody? I believe it's conversations. I think it is circular tables. Well, this is a rectangle, but it is sitting at a table like this and having a conversation over God's word. Hey, what do you think about this? What is your opinion? What's your, like, how have you lived that out? Zach, what's your story with that? Like grow and push and, and 
it's iron sharpening iron. I think it is developing each other. And it's, it sort of implies that you've got to have an actual relationship. Very true. With somebody. Very true. Over time, and it's going to come out. And so I think that's the way the church is built. You're supposed to be living with people and knowing them in a real way. I think in a lot of cases, yes. But I think like you look at a worship pastor, like a lot of churches hire secular musicians to come play worship music because they're really good at playing a guitar. And I think, think some discernment can come in there. Like I don't think that I have to have a personal relationship with my worship pastor to see him, see him out and he's drunk or he's posting pictures of him at a strip club. This isn't an actual example, by the way. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm this just, sounds this pretty is, extreme. This is, this is, this is, is that wow. you? Wow. Is that you we're talking about? Uh, no, I'm not good at music. So, uh, like, if he's posting pictures of him at a strip club, like, I could discern, like, okay, right. this guy right. is, doesn't seem like he fits qualifications to be serving in church. And so I think, I think it's both. But and I think we could probably talk for hours on why, like, the church doing those types of things, but right. But there's also scenario based vetting. So Zach, going back to your point. So as I encourage, encourage people to do all the time, like there's two options for, uh, you know, educating your kids, vetted private Christian school or homeschool. Okay. Mm. And I, I've talked about that a lot, so I'm not going to belabor it here. But when I talk about vetted private Christian, okay. So just because a school has a cross in their lobby does not mean that they're going to act on Christian values because they may have a cross in the lobby and an LGBTQ flag in the classroom. Okay. That's going to be a problem. But when you get into one of these schools, how do you vet a school? Um, Hey, uh, you go up to the administrator, the principal, or the teacher, and you say, hey, a child comes up to you and says that they're transgender. They would like to be referred to by pronouns that do not align with reality, truth, or uh, their biological sex. And they want you to call them by a different name and to make sure that nobody in the class makes fun of them when they start dressing like the opposite sex. What do you do? You shut up. You let them answer. And if it's anything short of, you know, we would make sure we cared for that child but we would also uphold truth and, you know, basically tell them like, God made you the way that you are. You can't fight against that. That's something, you know, a uh, kid is openly uh, gay or lesbian or something in your school. How do you handle that? Also, how do they handle sheepdog violence? By that, I mean, bigger kid is beating up a little kid. No teacher is around. Another kid hops in to protect the sheep. Is the wolf and the sheep, do they both get the same suspension? Like you're going to get ideas of how a, a, an entity thinks about justice, how they think about care, how they define what love is, because some Christian schools would say it would be loving to play into the delusion of the child that thinks they're the opposite gender, as you've seen in other schools around the country where they are putting litter boxes in the bathrooms at schools because they have kids that identify as a queer identity of furry. And so as opposed to using the bathroom, the toilet, the urinal, they are using the litter box. And so that's how you vet somebody. Same thing with deacons is you put them in scenarios, like almost like a job interview, like, hey, this happens. How would you respond? Now, they can give you the right answer and then act it out wrongly. But just by how the by virtue of them giving you an answer, it's almost like they're going on record. Well, sure. And I think that also speaks to uh, not like not being a new convert of like because Ecclesiastes says no, there's nothing new under the sun and so the problem that I'm bringing to my pastor he's probably seen it multiple times in his life so like I'm not bringing anything new probably but if it's a, if it's a new convert it's almost a guarantee you want him to be mature in yeah, the faith yes you want I'm, him to absolutely. have seen the things right you want him to be yeah. able to go yeah oh that's a great question actually you know in my experience right. we have done this or we would do this so that's yeah. a good point 
And guys, I mean, there's so much more there. We didn't even get to verses uh, 14 <laughs> through 16. There's great stuff there. But guys, we're going to have to leave it there. But come back next Sunday where we'll dig into 1 Timothy 4. Make sure that you read that so you're prepared for next week. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Add on Dalton Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the link I've got for you today is a donation link. Guys, if you don't know this by now, we are a donation-based ministry. We do get some money from advertisements. But if you want to see more content like this, if you want to see an expansion of our current content, we have guys that are hopping in on a monthly basis and supporting us with their dollars. That is how we're going to be able to grow. So we need y'all to hop in there with us so you can check out that link there. Thank you guys for listening to this episode. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Tides, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>